Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, everybody. This is uh, Danielle Karapkin speaking to you on uh, the platform of webyeshiva.org, both on the Facebook live page of Web Yeshiva and as well through their portal um, using their website, webyeshiva.org. We are studying Morena Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, and we are in Section 2, uh, and we're going to be ambitious today and try to cover two chapters today, Chapters 2 and 3 of this section. Um, the Rambam uh, had concluded Chapter 1 with providing a series of seven different arguments that could prove or at least argue for using Aristotelian logic uh, for the uh, existence of God, his unity and his incorporeality, the fact that he is not related to a body whatsoever. He, he alluded to the fact that he was now going to use Aristotelian logic to argue for the God of the Bible, that is the God of creation, which is not the God that Aristotle believes in. But before he does that, he's got to tie up some loose ends. And so we're going to provide you with a brief synopsis of chapter two, although it is a relatively short chapter. And, um, and then we're going to do chapter three, which is an even shorter chapter. So what I'd like to do for just a moment, if you give me a moment, I'm going to bring up my screen. Um, and we'll share that screen with you. All right. So in chapter two, uh, the Rambam, if you want to follow it along in the Pines edition, you can, you can find chapter two on page 252 of the Shlomo Pines edition of the English uh, translation of the Morena Vuchim. You can divide chapter two in two parts. Part one is really to come to some conclusions based upon the Aristotelian arguments that were made in chapter one, that were based on the premises that were made in the introduction to section two. So part one, we write just write in our synopsis, the conclusions based on the philosophic arguments of chapter one. The Rambam basically says, uses what we call in Talmudic parlance, a mimonafshach argument, that no matter how you look at it, you must conclude that there is a deity, that there is a, a divine being that is responsible for all of existence. And he says as follows, regardless of whether the heavenly spherical matter, which the Rambam at the beginning of chapter two calls the fifth body or the fifth type of matter, that is different from the four elements that we encounter in our world. Um, the Rambam had maintained before using Aristotelian science that the heavenly material is a type of material that is different, and that's why it's called the fifth matter or the fifth body, 
because it's different from the four elements of earth, wind, fire, and water that exist in our world. So regardless of whether the heavenly spherical matter was created or has eternally existed, you must conclude that God is responsible for it. And as we mentioned last week, when discussing chapter one, the Rambam really for the purposes of being concise and simplifying the ideas is just calls the heavenly realm the sphere, even though the uh, heavenly realm is comprised of multiple concentric spheres, but in general, you can call it the sphere, right? To be inclusive of all of those spheres. And God must be responsible for the matter that is made up in the heavens. And, even, and that's true whether you subscribe to the Aristotelian theory that the spheres and the rest of the universe have always existed, or whether you subscribe to the biblical narrative that God at some point created all of that. And he, he argues as follows. If heavenly spherical matter was created, then it must have something outside itself that brought it into existence. We've studied this previously in chapter one and in the introduction to section two, that any finite body must have a mover or a cause that brings it into existence. This is God as creator, who must be the deity in his essence, as was discussed in chapter one, that anything finite must have something infinite as its ultimate cause. We refer you back to chapter one because we're not going to go back to that discussion. The Rambam really doesn't bring this up. I, that's why I included it in parentheses because he's relying on all of the proofs that he had provided in chapter one and in the introduction, and he doesn't really feel it necessary to reiterate this point. But if in effect, the heavenly realm was created at some point, there must have been an infinite bodiless unitary deity that brought that heavenly um, essence into existence. And on the other hand, if the heavenly spherical matter has eternally existed, then that which moves the sphere, because the sphere is constantly in motion, that mover must be incorporeal. And that's why you'll note that in Aristotelian philosophy, God is known as the prime mover, not as the creator, not as the origin of anything, because according to this contingency, uh, if the world has eternally existed, God did not bring the world into existence, but rather God is responsible for the infinite motion of the universe. And that being who is responsible for the constant and incessant motion of the spheres must be incorporeal and not exist within a body. That is, by definition, the deity. And the, and, uh, the Rambam says that this has already been demonstrated by that which we've presented in the introduction and, and in chapter one. Similarly, the other truths of God that he is unitary and incorporeal can be, can be demonstrated regardless of whether the world was created or has eternally existed using our philosophic proofs of the previous chapter. And the Rambam says in particular, if you wish to look at the third philosophic argument, he finds that to be the most satisfying and the most directly um, indicative of the things that he is presenting in this first part of section of, of chapter two. And we, you can refer back to that on page 247. And then the Rambam says that I will now proceed to explain to you two things that I'm going to explain to you in the ensuing chapters. A, the Aristotelian depiction of separate intellects and how this depiction is in sync with the Torah's depiction of angels. 
So we're not going to get into a detailed discussion of what the Rambam means by separate intellects, but just as a basic overview, we pointed out that the, um, the heavenly realm is comprised of concentric spheres. The highest sphere is closest to God and receives the most uh, divine influence or emanation, and the outermost sphere then emanates some of its divine influence to the next sphere that is just below it, and the same thing with that sphere to the next sphere just below it, and so forth and so on until you get to the bottommost sphere that is closest to our, to our Earth, known as the lunar sphere, because it was believed that that's the sphere that contains the orbit of the Moon, um, and that is what emanates and influences heaven, uh, earthly material and all of the uh, the beings that exist on this physical world. Uh, the, the, uh, the Rambam points out to us that Aristotle described how each sphere is a sentient being, means it has intellect, and it uses that intellect uh, to influence the sphere immediately below it. Now, we don't, when we talk about sentience, we don't mean sentience like in, a, in, in, a, in the human sense. These sentient uh, spheres do not have free will, and we'll talk about that later. But what the Rambam is going to point out to us is that the Torah is consistent with that. The Torah describes something called Malachim, describes angels. And in, in fact, the Rambam uh, posits that Aristotle's depiction of these intellects that exist in the heavenly realm are the same thing, exactly the same thing as the Torah's depiction of Malachim, of angels. And the second thing he says that I'm going to describe for you are proofs for the world having been created contra Aristotle's depiction of an eternal universe. That uh, even though Aristotle is correct on almost everything that he wrote about the nature of the universe, both in the physical world and in the metaphysical realm, in the heavenly realm, nonetheless, I'm going to demonstrate how this particular part of Aristotle's science is not correct, because it's based on theory, not based on conclusive proof. Um, and the reason why I put these two together, says the Rambam, is because we're going to need to prove A in order to effectively demonstrate B. I'm first going to have to give you my discussion of angels and of the separate intellects, and then I'm going to use that to prove that everything initially was created by God. And then, and we quote for you directly from the text itself, before that, however, it is necessary to set forth a preface, which is like a lamp illuminating the hidden features of the whole of this treatise, both of those of its chapters that come before and of those that come after. And this is the Rambam essentially signaling to us that I'm about to say something that's dramatically important for us to absorb and to really ruminate over in order for us to appreciate the project that he is embarking on. And this is therefore what he calls his preface. And this is therefore part two of chapter two, which we're now also going to do very briefly. And this is sort of a synopsis of, of that preface. It's actually a short preface in and of itself. There's no reason not to read it inside. Uh, it starts on page 253 and goes to goes over to page and finishes the chapter. But I'll give you a synopsis of it because there's a number of things that I'd like to discuss in the short time that we have. So first the Rambam writes, my objective in writing this treatise was not 
to teach physics or natural science or divine science, metaphysics about God, or to teach you what has been proven by them, or to teach you about the nature of the heavenly spheres. There are already enough books about these subjects, about natural science, about divine science, about physics and metaphysics. I'm not here to teach you Aristotelian uh, science and philosophy. Rather, my objective is to elucidate difficult passages in the Torah that are beyond the grasp of most people. And here the Rambam returns really to the very beginning of Morenevuchim. And he writes basically that, as I mentioned in my introduction, my objective is to show you the hidden parts of the Torah, the esoteric parts of the Torah, the parts of the Torah that are given to easy misinterpretation by people who just look at the surface text without delving deeper. And therefore, why am I bringing all of these philosophical concepts? Because I believe that when you study Aristotelian science, you will get a better understanding of these Torah passages that are so cryptic and difficult to understand. And so he says, when I discuss philosophical concepts, such as separate intellects, the spheres, matter and form, or divine overflow, and we're going to talk about divine overflow as representing the prophetic experience. We'll get to that shortly. My objective is not to teach philosophy qua philosophy. You have already learned in the introduction to the Mora, to this work, that it is rather to clarify Torah matters that pertain to the difficult topics and look very carefully at how he lists the difficult topics that he said that he wished to explain in his introduction. Ma'asevereshit, the act of creation. Ma'ase Merkava, the act of the chariot, and we've discussed these two terms quite extensively in the past, that the Rambam, starting from the very introduction of Moren Vuchim, and I refer you to our earlier lectures, says that these are the two topics that Aristotle can shed the most light on, the things that the Mishnah in the second chapter of Tractate Chagiga says that are extremely esoteric and should not be taught to students um, unless uh, under very, very limited conditions, and the students themselves are already masters of most of the Torah already. And the reason is, is because they are very easily given to misinterpretation, to try and understand what our world is made of, and to try to understand Ma'asei Merkava, which is what the heavenly realm is made of. Um, and C, the, other, the third thing that I told you at the introduction of the Mora that I wanted to explain to you was difficulties regarding prophecy, trying to explain how there is this conjunction between the divine and the human, which is the phenomenon called prophecy, and finally, knowledge of God, how a human being can ultimately know God. Now, those are the four things that I told you my Morin Vuchim was, was going to try and explain. And then he says in the final paragraph of this chapter, he says, therefore, if you discover that I am expounding on a matter of philosophy, whether it be natural science, divine science, correct logic, or mathematical principles, it is only because these matters will clarify something found in Tanakh, in the Jewish Bible, related to Ma'asei Merkava, Ma'asei Vereshit, a foundational principle of prophecy, or the proper thinking on a Torah principle. Now, this is really just a synopsis of what the Rambam writes in this chapter, <clears throat> and I have in the brackets 
that I want us to think about something. First of all, he has completely just reiterated what he said in the previous uh, sentence. He hasn't really told us anything new. He basically is repeating the fact that when I teach you about philosophy, it's not philosophy qua philosophy, it's philosophy to help uh, enlighten us uh, to understand difficult passages in the Jewish texts, in, in the Tanakh, in the Torah, and in the words of the sages. Um, why then does he repeat it? And notice, and this is a very subtle point that's easy to miss, when he lists the four things that he previously had listed, Ma'asei Bereshit, Ma'asei Merkava, difficulties regarding prophecy and knowledge of God, here the Rambam, look, A is Ma'asei Merkava, B is Ma'asei Bereshit, C is, again, foundational principle of prophecy, and D is the proper thinking on a Torah principle. Now, the Rambam has done two things that are seemingly quite strange, that he doesn't seem to be remembering what he wrote above. First of all, he switches the order of Ma'asei Vereshit and Ma'asei Merkava, and he previously had mentioned Ma'asei Vereshit, the act of creation first, and then the act of the chariot second. And here at the end of the chapter, he lists first Ma'asei Merkava and then Ma'asei Vereshit. He does include the discussion of prophecy, but then, whereas in the previous paragraph, he had talked about the fourth item that he wanted to discuss was knowledge of God, here he says that I want to discuss the proper thinking on a Torah principle in general, not the specifics of knowing God. So that's our question. Why does the Rambam repeat himself? And then when he lists the four things he set out to explain to us, he changes the list in this way. So um, I'm going to offer you my theory as far as what I think the Rambam is doing. He's really signaling to us in a very subtle way. And as we've discussed many times before, the Rambam claims in the very introduction of the Mora that he is the master of this technique of obscuring more subtle ideas for the uninitiated to not really be able to pick up on them, and only for someone who is more of a uh, has more intellectual dexterity to be able to understand what he's really doing. So I think just simplistically, and perhaps I'm not getting to the true depths of what the Rambam is saying, but I'd like to just like to offer that he's not contradicting himself. He did set out in the introduction of the Mora to tell us that there are four topics that he feels that are most important for every Jew to know to the best of their ability, to, best, to the best of their intellectual capacity. And he goes in succeeding order, in other words, from the lowest to the highest. The first thing you need to know is about nature, how our world works. The second thing, going in ascending order going the, the next level of knowledge that you have to master once you've mastered Ma'asei Vereshit is Ma'asei Merkava, learning the metaphysics of the heavenly realm and, and the, what, we would, what Aristotle calls divine science. The third level of knowledge is the difficulties regarding prophecy because now we're getting into the apparent contradiction between this huge chasm, this huge gap that exists between God and man and how we bridge that gap. And that's a, a more advanced discussion. So that's the discussion of prophecy. And finally, not only bridging the gap between God and man, but actually conjoining with God, the true knowledge of God, that's the fourth and highest level of, of knowledge that a person can strive to obtain and what the Rambam has set out to accomplish in writing Moren of Uchim. But now he's telling us at the very end of chapter two that I want you to appreciate the fact that 
what my the, my purpose for bringing in Aristotelian ideas is not necessarily going to help us appreciate all that I set out to discuss in Morena Vuchim. There are some things about Aristotelian science and philosophy that will help illuminate some of the things in my very ambitious list, but ultimately when we get into the highest spheres of knowledge, even Aristotelian science will fail us. And so what Aristotle can shed light on are things that are almost at the apex, but when it comes to a knowledge of God, because Aristotle's God is quite different from the biblical God, Aristotle will not be able to enlighten us to the fullest degree. But, and that's why knowledge of God is removed from this list on the bottom. And instead it's the proper thinking of Torah principles when we find words of our sages or words that are contained in the Psukim, Aristotle's writings may shed light on, in general, how we look at the Torah, how we look at the teachings of our sages and so forth. As to why the Rambam reversed the order of Maasei Merkava and Maasei Vereshit, as you're going to see, the Rambam is sort of signaling to us the order of what the ensuing chapters are going to be about. And as you'll see, the Rambam chooses to discuss in at the very outset of section two, more of a discussion of what's going on in heaven, and only then will he bring everything down to earth. And he, I believe he does so because he's, he's patterning himself after Aristotle, who perhaps has an easier time at discussing how things come and emanate downwards from the heavens down into our earth. And therefore he reverses the order and he says, when we are going to call Aristotle and bring him into the discussion of how to shed light on Torah ideas, we're going to perforce have to use him and explain Maase Merkava first, the metaphysics of the divine realm, and then we'll bring that down to Maase Vereshit, and we'll keep our discussion of prophecy because Aristotle has much to enlighten us about what the prophetic experience is all about. And, and as you'll see, the Rambam's idea of prophecy is purely from an intellectual standpoint, using Aristotelian ideas of harnessing and honing one's intellect. And, and that's the reason why I think he's changed the list of the four from the previous paragraph to our present paragraph. Okay, so that's the first thing that I wanted to point out. And then let's just conclude our discussion today with a brief synopsis of chapter three. And I think that instead of just reading the synopsis, let's just read it because it's on the bottom of page 254. And it is so brief that it's worthwhile just reading it inside. He says, know that although the opinions held by Aristotle regarding the causes of the motion of the spheres, from which opinions he deduced the existence of separate intellects, and I said, we will get there, trust me. Um, so he says, these are simple assertions for which no demonstration has been made. So when we talk about how the heavenly realm operates, realize that Aristotle is a theoretician and not uh, has not been able to demonstrate the way the, the heavenly realm works through proofs. It's like the theory of evolution. No one was there to see a, 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 a monkey evolve into a human being. No one has access to the heavenly realm to definitively prove that the way that Aristotle 
discusses the matters of the heavens is absolutely true. It is, however, uh, assertions, theories um, that have been argued. The arguments are plausible, but they have not been absolutely proven. They are, of all the opinions put forward on the subject, those that are ex exposed to the smallest number of doubts and those that are the most suitable for being put into a coherent order, just as, so basically he says, they make the most sense. But that doesn't mean for sure that they're right. And the Rambam is signaling to us at the very outset that there may be some things that we should take liberty in disagreeing with Aristotle because we have a Torah. And the Torah, when it comes to a point where we cannot reconcile it anymore with an Aristotelian idea about the heavens, we will, we should not feel so discomfited by that because not everything that Aristotle writes is proven. And therefore he might have gotten certain things wrong. But Alexander, he then quotes Alexander of Aphrodisius has written in his book, The Principles of the All, that's the way Pines translates it, but I've seen other texts translated as the principles of the universe. It's also known as the Mabadi, which is its English, uh, sorry, its Arabic uh, term, uh, because that's the name of the work in, in the shortened version, it's called the Mabadi, which basically means the, the foundations or the, the basic ideas. Um, these sayings, now, and I just wanna point out that this book by Alexander of Aphrodisius is no longer extant. It was written originally in Greek. We no longer have the original Greek. All we have are the Arabic translation. Um, and we also have a, a more recently discovered Syriac translation of Alexander of Aphrodisius's Mabadi. Uh, as we've pointed out before, Alexander lived around the year 200 of the Common Era. He wrote in Greek and he was the lens of interpretation and refinement of many Aristotelian ideas. Um, if you do have the Pines edition, which I am certainly encouraging you to, to have, in the first volume of the uh, translation of the Morenevuchim, Pines has a discussion of Alexander of Aphrodisius and his influence on the Rambam as of several pages of that, and I encourage you to go over that. But as, as pertains this particular idea, um, or this particular work of Alexander of Aphrodisius, the Rambam um, makes mention of this work twice. This is the second time. He also made mention of this work of Alexander in chapter 31 of the, of the first section. Uh, just to give you a paragraph of sort of, to give you an idea of a more recent writing on this book uh, written, this is from an essay by Daniel King known as Alexander of Aphrodisius's on the principles of the universe in its Syriac adaptation. And the argument that he presents is that the, the Arabic edition sort of uh, censors a little bit of Alexander's work, whereas the Syriac adaptation does not. And he writes that Alexander of Ephesus's Mabadi is concerned primarily with the motions of the heavenly spheres and how these are caused, together with various ancillary questions about the relationship between these motions and the motions of the sublunary bodies, as well as how both of these relate to the first or unmoved mover. Broadly speaking, it is an attempt by Alexander to harmonize various different passages in Aristotle, and he gives us those various different passages from physics, metaphysics, and de anima. 
It thus presents a supposedly peripatetic cosmology, meaning something that dates back to the students of Aristotle, those that are known as the peripatetics, grounded in Aristotle, but incorporating some of the results of subsequent philosophical and astronomical research. The text has a special concern for demonstrating the effects of the heavenly spheres on sublunar bodies. The model of celestial mechanics that is thereby presented appears to be designed as a grounding for the general theories of providence and fate, which Alexander expounded in detail elsewhere in another completely different work with the Rambam. We'll talk about this later on. Now, um, just to go back to our text, uh, text in chapter three, that just gives you some background on what this work, the Mabadi, is all about. And he says that Alexander has sort of demonstrated that, um, that Aristotle's depiction of the motion of the heavenly spheres is extremely plausible. Now, it's important to note that Alexander subscribes wholeheartedly to Aristotle's depiction of an eternal universe, that he does not believe that the universe at one time was created. Uh, and that's fine, because he's a pure uh, he's a purebred Aristotelian. The Rambam continues and he says, these sayings also are in harmony with many sayings of the law, that many of the things that you will find in Aristotle's writings are very consistent with the Torah, and more particularly with what is explained in the generally known Midrashim, about whose having been composed by the sages there is no doubt, as I shall explain. And so the Rambam is making good on his claim that he made before in the preface, and that is, my whole reason for bringing Aristotelian teachings is to shed light and illuminate and explain both passages in Tanakh and various statements made by Chazal, by our sages. I therefore shall set forth his opinions and his proofs so that I may cull from them what agrees with the Torah and corresponds to the sayings of the sages, may their memory be blessed. And here again, he's signaling that there will be times when we will have to depart from Aristotle if we find that he is not in accord with certain statements of the Torah and statements of the sages. I'm going to conclude our discussion today with just a very brief commentary. And that is, and I thank Rabbi Tolidano in his commentary for just uh, writing more extensively on this topic. Um, many people may argue that uh, there's really no benefit in studying Moren Nebuchim in the 21st century, because the Rambam is taking um, outdated science and outdated philosophy, because the world no longer subscribes to the Aristotelian depiction of what is known as the Ptolemaic planetary system, um, something that describes the world as being in the center of concentric spheres, of having four elements, and, uh, and having uh, separate intellects, each intellect being part of a different sphere and there being a prime mover. All of this is ancient or medieval science. It's got nothing to do with our understanding of the world today. But what I really feel is important, and it's so, so necessary for us to sort of absorb the words of this very short preface that we have on our screen today, is that the Rambam feels it's his duty to take the science of his day to illuminate and to shed light on the Torah. That is, the Rambam says that if you only study the Torah texts without a, taking into account the wisdom of the world around you, you will at some point 
be not gleaning the full benefits of the Torah. You, at some point, will have to cull scientific knowledge about reality, about existence, from outside sources, because there is wisdom that exists out there that can shed light on what our sages meant, on what the Psukim and Tanakh meant, and therefore, even though the Rambam is culling from the secular knowledge of the world around him in his time, he's signaling to us that that's what we should be doing as well in the 21st century. We should be taking a knowledge of physics. We should be taking a discussion of cosmology and the realities of the world and, and quantum physics and uh, all of its confusing language and try to use that as a way of shining a light on some of the ideas that are described in the Torah, especially Ma'asei the act of creation, especially in trying to understand certain very difficult passages of Chazal who speak in riddles and in esoteric language. Uh, this is the project. This is the project of Moreh Nebuchim, and this is the project for the contemporary Jew as well. So with that, I will leave you. I'm sure we'll come back to this discussion at some point in the future, but I do feel that this preface should, should certainly be underlined or bolded in the text of one's studies of Moreh Nebuchim. So we'll hold it here for today, folks, and I wish you a wonderful rest of the week. Take care now.